Welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. I'm Richard Kemp, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Anne-Marie Bathmaker, Professor Emerita of Vocational and Higher Education at the University of Birmingham. Anne-Marie is author of The Degree Generation, alongside her fellow authors, Nicola Ingram, Jesse Abrahams, Laura Bentley, Harriet Bradley, Tony Hoare, Van der Papa Filippo, and Richard Waller. The university years are a defining time in many graduates' lives, though not everyone's experience is the same or even easy for reasons of class, social background, education, and more. The Degree Generation, which is published by Bristol University Press, follows a cohort of millennial students on a multi-year journey as they study, graduate, and later join the workforce. By following students through their undergraduate degrees, and for four years post-graduation, with candid interviews throughout, the authors seek to understand why some graduates get what they want out of the university experience, while others do not, and the changes in policy so needed to address this uneven divide. Anne-Marie Bathmaker, welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Oh yeah, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to have you on um, after reading your book. The interviews were so were so uh, so interesting all the way through. They really, you really got so much out of your out of your interview candidates. Um, I really enjoyed reading them. Uh, you you talk about the broken promise of university and cruel optimism, especially for the working class. What was um, what was the promise, and how was it broken? So I want to start off by giving you an example of the promise and the dream of what counts as graduate success. And this is one of the participants in the project who says, I'm going to get this really amazing job. I'm going to change the world. I'm going to be middle class. And then I'll have like a great amount of money coming in and I'll have a nice suburban house and drive a Jeep. Right. Clearly, her description of a successful graduate career was a bit tongue in cheek, but it sums up the promise. Mm-hmm. And what we and others know is that university promised the chance of a better life. And that big promise in the 2010s, which is when the paired peers participants went to university, and it's a continuing promise, um, is that university will give access to graduate labor market, it will give access to graduate jobs. And those jobs are going to be high skilled, they're going to be professional roles, and they're going to be well paid. And that people will, they'll benefit from what's called a graduate premium. And that's measured as the financial returns to getting a degree. And yet, Despite an increasingly turbulent world and all sorts of ways, including turbulent and precarious labour markets, that promise also implies that going to university will make an individual's future less precarious and it will make it more stable. Well, we know not just from what we did, but from a whole array of labour market data that there's no automatic or straightforward link between going to university and securing a future that's well paid or less precarious or a future of choice. So when the participants who we talked to in this book graduated in 2014, the government's own data showed that graduate unemployment was already 13 percent. And a third of graduates, 32 percent of them were not in graduate or high skilled jobs. And in addition, that graduate premium was decreasing. So the graduates um, in the book are part of the millennial generation. They were born between 81 and 96. They did earn, they did have a premium. Um, they earned on average 11% more than their non-graduate counterparts at 25. But the previous generation, Gen X, um, they earned 19% more than their non-graduate peers. Wow. So that's quite a big, big difference already mm-hmm. happening. So there's a lot of talk by Phil Brown and others. They talk about congested labor markets where there's not only not room at the top for everyone, but there's actually not room in the middle for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um 
Kate Purcell and other researchers talk not not just about um, graduate jobs. They talk about jobs graduates do. And not only is getting it not getting it is getting a graduate job not straightforward, but the jobs that graduates do don't necessarily require high skills that are associated with it, what we're told it means to be a graduate, and they don't offer the sorts of salaries that graduates are encouraged to expect. What we do know, and what we found in our study, is that for students from middle class backgrounds, uh, going to university is taken for granted now, but it's a really important way of maintaining and consolidating your class position. And so it's about parents and it's about individuals investing in the future, doing what Annette Leroux has called concerted cultivation of capitals. And what we were able to do in the book is to trace how that happens right through from childhood into adulthood. Um, so here's an example of what that looks like. Um, one of our participants explained, um, he said, uh, everyone's got A at GCSEs. You've just got to try and differentiate yourself, like <laughs> an investment society or do an internship or do mooting. Because some of these people, um, it's ridiculous. You know, they run a soup kitchen in their spare time. Uh, they've got a first class honours in their degree. They've been to Africa. They've saved a school from famine. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so you've got to try and aim for that or match it. And you've got to build your CV because it's so competitive. On the other hand, the students from working class backgrounds in our study and elsewhere, um, it's not about consolidating advantage and doing the sorts of things that I've just just uh, quoted from, from a middle-class participant in the project. It's about, and the promise was, it's a route to mobility and it's a route to changing lives. And the big emphasis is and was on economic mobility so that everyone can earn as much money as possible and you're expected to fit in and you're expected to love the university experience and you're expected to be prepared to move on. And what we found was fitting in wasn't easy. Mm. Um, so one student said to us, people paint this picture of you going off and it's a lovely thing and you're going to be happy. And then she says, I wasn't happy. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy living with other young people. Mm. Um, I think about uni work before I go out, whereas they think, oh, it doesn't matter as long as I go and pack, come back at three o'clock in the morning and then do my uni work, it'll be fine. There's an assumption you're, that you'll be happy. And there's an assumption that students from working class backgrounds are going to be ready to leave their class behind. But what we found is that that doesn't necessarily match, doesn't match what working class students want. There's things that they like about their working class backgrounds, uh, things that that they enjoy um they like they like their home lives they want to have jobs where they're going to be happy and be amongst the people that they enjoy being with it doesn't have to be a high paid job so all those things suggested to us that not only is the promise not being fulfilled but it might also be not what people necessarily want if, even if it were to be fulfilled in the way it was originally intended there have been there have been other academics who have who have surveyed graduates in this way before, but but they've only they've only ever covered a short amount of time of uh, after students graduate. Um, your paired peers study that that you document well in the book uh, it followed them for four years after graduation, uh, much much longer than than other surveys. Can you talk about how you conducted your research and and did that extra time make a difference to the study? Um, yeah, so as as you've as you've said, first of all, it was a qualitative study, so we spent a lot of time uh, talking to and listening to um, the participants in the study, and it was longitudinal. So yeah, it started when the 
uh, young when what, it was young undergraduates when they started university and it followed them right through to four years after they graduated so yeah it was a really um rich opportunity in terms of learning about them and about their lives um and and those participants that stayed with us right through to the end said it's, it has been a real opportunity for them as well to think and reflect as they've moved on but a real insight for us into seeing how how people developed over time and and how they shifted or didn't shift their hopes and and, and their fears and what they hoped to achieve but also seeing how that played out and how they negotiated their way I should just say, uh, by the by, but really importantly, that the Leverhulme Trust funded us right through that project. And we were so grateful to the trust for having the trust in us mm -hmm. to conduct the project and do something worthwhile with the funding that we had. Um, and we're, we're very convinced that what we've found and learned and have been able to put in the book um, has been has been worth that that time that the participants gave and also that the funding from the Leverhulme Trust. But what was really important was not that we've shown something completely different to the statistical data and the short term um, information that we have about what happens to people after they graduate, but the sorts of processes that are lying underneath those statistical headlines about what happens to people, about how it is that um, students and and uh, and undergraduates and then as they become graduates and move into the labor market the sorts of things that happen that that in that enable or make challenging the sorts of things that happen in their lives and that varies from having somebody to back you up so you can do unpaid work experience rather than having to do paid employment alongside studying at university it comes from the sorts of people you know and the friends that you can call on uh, that will help you along the way just because they're friends not because they're trying to do anything more than 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 help you to to succeed but if you don't have those friends and you don't have those connections um that makes it a whole lot more challenging and mm. and we heard about how some people found uh, people who would help them along the way while they were at university and working class participants in particular um talked about opportunities either from employers when they were out and when they were doing part-time work or from doing a paid work experience opportunity or a tutor at university who, who made a real difference but were really important in making that difference because they were they were un, they were they didn't have access to some of those sorts of people elsewhere but they're the sorts of things that yes you can quantify and yes you can say this is what happened after six months but they they're they're only just about visible. We we saw things that were almost invisible um, for a lot of the time, and we had our participants also articulated articulated things that gave you a sense of what was going on to make them feel comfortable or uncomfortable in both in university and then moving on into employment, and gave you something behind the idea that it's just about wanting to achieve a goal and having the aspiration and being determined what actually got in the way of that, that got into your head that helped to make it possible or not possible. Yeah. That's uh that, that comes up so much through throughout the book, the, the, I kind of was getting a, a feeling of, I was kind of remembering my own graduation um, and that uh, um, kind of the, the the weight on the shoulders of the graduate afterwards are just like well you've got your paper now off you go and and it's up to you the individual to 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 make sure that you you know grab grab every brass ring for the rest of your life now good luck off you go 
That's absolutely right. It's um well, the papers tell you that you may or may not have done a degree that was a waste of time, um, that only certain graduates count. Uh, your parents are desperately hoping that you're going to be successful, and that means that you're going to find employment. Um, and if you're from a working class background, you actually need to find employment because you probably haven't got the bank of mum and dad or anyone else who can who can um, keep you going while you spend time looking for and finding something else. But there's also that, that real pressure. Um, and the undergraduates uh, in our study and as they graduated were still convinced and this is in the 2010s were still convinced that you go to university you get a good degree so you work hard to get a good degree and then you get a job um, even though we knew and they could have chosen to be surrounded by the evidence that said that is not happening anymore it's it's really not happening but you you not only don't want to see that or believe it but you get a whole sense of it's down to me, um, mm. a sense of guilt that if you don't be, happen to be the one that gets a job, it's not uh, It's not because of what surrounds you. It's because you haven't put in enough effort. Mm. Yeah, certainly. That's certainly how it how it's uh, how it feels for I can just speak for myself, but also many you know, graduate friends I have, too. Yeah, it's um, that's a very strong theme for graduates that I've seen personally. And then seeing it, seeing it come up through the book, it was kind of. Is nice the right word? Kind of nice to know, like, oh yeah, it's not uh it's not in my head necessarily. And it's not uh, you know, it's not just through all the choices that that I'm gonna make for there, there's individual responsibility I, I can I can accept to a point, but but that's not the only thing going on here. Yeah. Um, that was that was good to read through. In German, they call it the aha erlebnis. It's the flash of the obvious. You sit there and you read it and you think, oh yeah. That's exactly was my experience, but uh -huh. nobody ever talked about it, so I hadn't dared to even articulate it. Mm, mm -hmm, definitely. Uh, I wanted to touch on some, uh, or like come back to something you touched on earlier as well. Um, that um, you you analysed experiences of of students from both the University of Bristol and uh, the University of Bristol being UOB and the um, University of the West of England, the UE. Uh, one thing you found was that there were more UE students in employment after graduation, but that those from UOB who were in work were more likely to be in higher salaried employment and actually related to their degree. What was the reason or maybe reasons for, for this divide? I mean, obviously, it's really positive uh, that students from both universities, from UE, which is a um, a modern university and, and, and that has a strong reputation for teaching and research, and then the University of Bristol, that's part of the Russell Group, so considered to be part of the elite set of universities in, in, in the UK, um, to see that students from both universities moved on to employment. Um, in our study, when we look at the differences, we can suggest a number of factors at play that... Um, that we think may have played a role. So first of all, um, there's getting a job and getting a job that you want. Um, and falling back on the parental home and family resources is not readily available to all students. So getting a job and getting any job becomes a priority. And certainly in our study, um, but also across um, across the both universities as a whole, there would have been more students from working class backgrounds at UE than there would have been from the University of Bristol. And certainly what we found was that those students who came from backgrounds where they couldn't fall back on family and friends and spend time thinking about what they might want to do, and it didn't really matter if they hadn't got anything immediately, they needed to move into employment really quickly. So there was likely to be evidence that they would move into um, employment more quickly um, early on. 
I would just say additionally, we we followed students who were studying the same subjects at the two universities. And it's important to say that because at UWE, there probably are more students following degrees that lead into named professions. Mm. So overall, across the whole university, more students at UWE might be likely to have a, a, a more direct route into, into a named uh, profession or employment. But we didn't necessarily have that sort of grouping because we were looking at students who followed the same subjects at the two universities. So that's the first reason. If you If you haven't got anything to fall back on, you've got to get a job. It might be a job that graduates do run than a graduate job. So secondly, um, we heard our high ranking employers who pay high salaries, they continue to go and look at elite universities when they're recruiting. Not only, um, but here's an example of uh, one graduate in our study who, and he was explained to us why he was confident he was going to be successful in a job that he was going for. He said, um, well, the thing about this company is um, they hire, well, they don't hire anyone. Um, they hire graduates who have um, like intelligent sort of personas and, in, and and good grades. So so it's people from Oxford or Russell Group. And he was mm-hmm. yeah hedging his bets. But yeah, um, it, we, we heard that time and time again that employers, uh, if in doubt, they would go to or they would look at um, look at students, and that would count uh, which university uh, they had on, they had on their CV. And then a third thing that came up in our study, um, which is apparent from other research, is that there are more higher salary jobs in London and around London. Mm. And not only were more graduates from the University of Bristol in a position to live in London because they could afford to or they've got family there, but they could also fit into London. There's there's definitely other researchers said the same thing. There's a there's a distinctive metropolitan elite and way of doing and being in London that they were more able to fit into. So there were good reasons why they might more readily access those jobs in the capital. Yeah, that's a, that, that metropolitan elite um, term came up quite a lot in the book. And I, while I, the first time I read it, I was like, oh, this is, this is the phrase that the Daily Mail uses to, to, you know, to, to, to shame liberal people. Like I know this phrase, uh, but, but it wasn't, but it wasn't about that in, in your book. It's a whole, it's a whole different experience of, of um, like I was kind of reading it and just noticing like, oh yeah, like uh, the, the, this, this phrase to explain kind of the, uh, the cultural, um, the, uh, I think you call it the cultural capital um, yeah. that, that, that people have, that people have this shared, this shared experience, this shared background um, and all, and also shared uh, kind of types of lineages a lot of the time, so that they can call on support where they need it. It does kind of. It sounded like in the book that it was kind of creating, like it was kind of or not creating homogeneity. Like homogeneity is already there, and the, and it just keeps on getting filled up with more homogeneity. That's right, and you and and in a, in a you you can you can join it, and you can become part of it through various means. But it's about and and it's almost um and it's it's often tacit. Um, mm. but it's there and it's a, and you, and you hear it when you hear people talking about, um, when we heard participants in the project talking about wanting to live in London and work in London and then a reluctance and then talking about what that reluctance involved. And although it wasn't articulated precisely as that, it was about not fitting in. Uh, mm. and then we heard people talking about 
yeah, moving quite easily and comfortably into being part of London um, and, and, and fitting into the milieu and knowing how what you did and how you m- moved yourself around uh, the capital in terms of jobs and in terms of lifestyle and so on. Um, and we also heard uh, from one t- participant who succeeded in moving into London who hadn't got any of those opportunities, but it was hard and talking about just what challenges there were and the setbacks and how... And so you heard from those stories about the things that you hadn't even thought about that made it easy or difficult around being part of that metropolitan culture. Most Mostly people talk as though you've got to have geographical mobility, you've got to have the money to move to London. But it was more than that. It was about a, a sense of fitting in and being part of that whole milieu. Mm, that makes so much sense that, yeah, you could... You could somehow scrabble the money together to move to London, but that doesn't that doesn't mean that that you're that the world's suddenly going to open up to you. There's like there's there are other kind of like invisible things in a way, or like on like uh like money, financial means, and stuff like that. That can kind of be spoken about a lot of the time, and kind of can be put into tables and things, and can be understood through graphs. But that that sort of more uh yeah kind of invisible stuff. Um, that's that's where someone's going to find whether they. Would it be right to say, like, whether they sink or swim in a in a way uh, moving to London? I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. And swimming in one case, for example, rather than sinking, involved um, becoming a part of a network of people who had realised that they were going to sink or swim, and who'd created a network amongst themselves to help each other to swim. Right. Um, yeah. And and who'd all been struggling to to, to make something of what they wanted to do, um, and were succeeding by helping each other out. Oh, I love uh, that. Yeah. yeah, it was it was it was a great it was great to hear in terms mm. of, of, of having finding resources to help to help each other. Yeah. Yeah. That's a happy story through all these because um, a lot of the a lot of the book is kind of talking about structures that are um, kind of gamed against the working class, really. And or appear or certainly appear that way, not not in a necessarily uh, malicious, nefarious planned way but that's that's how the but that's how the structures seem to to work and yet you've just described they're kind of like a microcosm a mini structure that of people pulling each other up yeah, instead. yeah that's, that's right and i think the the one of the big challenges overall and that and that i think this our, our book helps to uncover is that the big structures people are aware of about the challenges that there are and the things that need to change and there are attempts to change those things and they may or may not look as though they are changing um it's a whole set of things that lie underneath that and that are both harder to put a finger on and I think participants in in the project when they talked to us and we listened to them um did put a finger on it by talking to us over the over time about the about just little things that made them able or not able to do things and the ways they went around that mm but that look as though they're innocuous. They look as though not much is going on, but actually they're the things that are making that, that are making the difference. They're making the difference between feeling okay and then developing and becoming successful or not. Um, and so it did mean that, yeah, obviously we, we encourage people to talk about their experience and, and it was a chance for them to talk about things that went wrong as well as went right, because you spend an awful lot of time, I think, uh, in our world now talking about what goes right, because... Mm-hmm talk yourself up as a successful person um but there were success stories and in general um our participants in the project perhaps because they were participating would would have chosen to participate because they'd got a 
a, a story to tell that usually came out in in a, in a positive direction, whatever that might might mean. Uh, but they were happy to talk about the setbacks, and we felt very privileged for them to talk about the setbacks. And for us, quite a lot of the setbacks helped us to understand um, what sorts of things were going on, but also what things need to change that are underneath the surface mm. of what normally discussed. Yeah. So class is a major theme throughout your book, uh, but also uh, gender and race come up quite a lot as well. Uh, you say um, you say that managers can hire in their own image and that the privilege of white male middle classness gets confused for hireable characteristics. Um, we're we're all aware of unconscious bias nowadays. Uh, and I, I'm just wondering, I was wondering while reading the book, just like, is is a, is the awareness enough? Because um, from your research, uh, hiring managers appear to still perpetuate the the same issues, the same problems that that we that we also have awareness of. Uh, I guess I'm just wondering, like, is it is it easier or financially less challenging, maybe, for employers to be less diverse? I guess um, it's a, it's quite. A good... <laughs> I have to stand back and think about the complexity of just of just what goes on. Mm. Um, as an individual, I'd be saying um, uh, actually awareness isn't enough. Um, and probably for many years, I'd have been saying that regardless of the research that we've done, you actually mm. need action and it needs to be um, sustained and required action to actually make a difference because making people aware we can keep on making people aware and then we can say oh well they may not have been aware um awareness is is uh, it's easy to make excuses for awareness or lack of awareness and it will go on forever um certainly beyond the end of my lifetime anyway so so definitely awareness isn't enough um and so in the work that we did in this study, um, I, I think what comes across clearly is that the often unacknowledged but taken for granted story about improving diversity and who makes a good hire is that it goes beyond uh, trying to address conscious and unconscious bias. Mm. Um, so uh, one of the graduates in our study explained what it was like uh, when she went for an interview and she said, uh, as soon as I walked in, I just felt like they disengaged immediately I don't know if it's because they looked at me and thought, well, we don't like the look. To address that requires change. And it means a willingness to change workplaces. It means a willingness to change workplace cultures and practices. And it means, and it's not just us and our book that's saying this, it means engaging in really quite difficult conversations because we need to disrupt what uh, workplaces expect and what employers expect of themselves and how they think they should be and what staff um, in workplaces think of themselves and how they should be. And so it's not just about expecting graduates to change and to fit in. It's about workplaces and cultures changing. So in other words, it's not just about making people who come from working class backgrounds or from black and Asian backgrounds or women and gender neutral people and others fit into workplace cultures. It means questioning and any accepted and taken for granted a notion of the way things are being how things should be. And I guess if I point to some of the big firms, uh, they would term what I've just described in terms of how they can make a profit out of that um, and how they can 
think and rethink and challenge their workplace cultures mm -hmm. to make themselves more successful. <laughs> um, but certainly in terms of our study, we would say if we want to make ourselves a happier, more successful, more um, socially just, uh, more open society, mm. uh, then we need to challenge the way things are, not just ask people to learn to fit in uh, mm. and then uh, and, and then encourage them to change to fit in and give them the opportunity to change. We actually have to be willing to confront the fact that our cultures have to change, our workplace cultures have to change. And so those who on the current advantage side, yeah, are going to have to do some changing themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's hard. <laughs> people don't necessarily, uh, they're happy for other people to change and join them. They're not necessarily mm -hmm. uh, wanting to work in the other direction. Right. With with making, making organizations more diverse, uh, I understand it as... Like it's a it's a win win for companies. Like you get if by by making your organization more welcoming, more diverse, you're you're therefore bringing in a wider array of people, um, backgrounds, yes, but also kind of ideas and ways of looking at the world. It's in just like just you know you basically just you're just opening opening the floodgates even wider than you already have, and therefore you're going to get even better candidates. But you was you were saying uh, you were saying about like um how businesses will will look in look to any any anything any any kind of uh, change as a way like well how can we make a profit out of this change i suppose that i'm wondering like is is that a problem that is always going to limit us which is that um uh if going going the corporate view of things in terms of like how can we continue to grow upwards uh um, financially in, in in every decision that we make is that therefore going to going to kind of hinder any any change that we that would be more positive that that we should be making so if I put to one side um, the possibility of what different sorts of societies that there might be, um, and, and, and we accept that we're working in a version of uh, advanced capitalism, then it's about one of the key issues is about how you engage with what that looks like and, and what possibilities there are. And obviously there are different views about what possibilities there are, but certainly if you're working from within what we've got, then making the most of the advantages that you can from greater diversity is going to have to be part of the solution. Um, but also has to be recognised that it could be part of a problem. Um, but also if greater diversity and people bringing new ideas into a workplace is part of a solution to encouraging diversity, um, it comes along with the, the other side of it, which is what I was trying to get at, which is that inevitably that will also mean cultures changing and there will be losses as well as gains and differences mm. and changes um, which are going to be challenging for people so that the advantages that a company might have from having greater diversity of all sorts of different kinds will come alongside having to confront some of some of the difficulties as well that come with with change and difference and i think that's the that's the side of the equation that not only tends to be less overtly discussed but also um avoided uh until it becomes until, until it becomes a critical moment mm. uh, and if i come back to, to to the work that that we did 
it it became obvious that actually where people young people from working class backgrounds in particular were beginning to succeed and were beginning to achieve what they wanted was um not just because they'd been uh, encouraged and 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 were fitting in but actually because things were shifting and changing as they became participants in a particular workplace and in particular cultures. Uh, and that was, that was quite important uh, in terms of seeing that shift. Mm, yeah. You, in, in your book, you, you quote, there's a quote from Ingram and, and, and Gamsu that really kind of jumped out at me. Um, you say, or they say, um, social mobility is not and cannot be the solution to class inequality. And it, and it made me think, wasn't wasn't social mobility like the the main selling point, um, like the big idea behind New Labour's opening up of the university experience? And then I was thinking, like, so so has this experiment failed? Yeah, I think that's uh, is a really interesting question and one that I think I grappled with all through the New Labour period, and, <laughs> uh, and of course, is the real challenge for uh, the widening of participation in higher education that took mm. place not just in in England and across the UK, but actually uh, across the globe, really, um, at, the, at the same time. Um, but what our research shows, and it echoes what's been said elsewhere. Um, is that the big the big challenge for the idea of social mobility, particularly in the 2000s, is that it was supposed to be a win-win. Mm. Um, I mean, to be crass under new Labour, there was the hope that the UK would be the high-skills nation and uh, low-skills work would, would be elsewhere. Well, we know that that's not only impossible, but it hasn't happened and, it, and, uh, and didn't happen then and was probably not an OK thing to imagine in any case. Um, no. Uh, but there would be no losers in the UK. Um, there would only be upward mobility. There would be no downward mobility. So social mobility wasn't about uh, people moving up, down or across. It was all about upward mobility. Um, and there would be high skilled and there would be highly paid jobs for anyone who wanted them. Um, and the way to achieve that, as far as New Labour was concerned, and um, and possibly even now, is to focus on education, in, in New Labour's case, higher education, and really, though, to really to the exclusion of any meaningful thinking about how labour markets um, were and have evolved locally and nationally and globally. Um, and so that got really quickly entangled with the idea that any individual who didn't succeed was lacking in aspiration. So although the chance to get higher education was a success and uh, and that that, you know, really happened uh, under new labour and we moved towards nearly 50% of uh, people under the age of 30 having an opportunity to participate in higher education, mm. um, the chance to make use of that on graduate labour markets has faltered massively. And that that's where, where the failing has come, the, the not thinking about labour markets as well as about educational opportunities and relying on education to be the solution. Mm, yeah. Through through your, through your um, uh, interviews, were you getting a sense of kind of how how the students and then later graduates kind of felt about the the graduate job market? I th I think it goes back to the very beginning of what we start, started talking about, about the promise and the broken promise. Um, and the and an enormous determination to believe that there would be graduate jobs. Um, and so a surprise, a shock, um, an unexpectedness, to discover that actually 
graduate labour markets turned out as they came to graduation and to move on were as well as we knew, which is that they were insecure, they were precarious, there were not graduate jobs for all, and getting a graduate job wasn't easy. It mm. wasn't just a matter of um, of working hard and then you'd and then you'd get through to a graduate job. So there were very mixed feelings. Um, in we talked we we talked to participants about whether they were happy you know in their decision to have gone to university and whether that was the right thing to do and would they choose differently um if not and what was really important for all of the people that we spoke to was that going to university was more than about getting a job mm. uh, it meant a lot of things in terms of who they became what sorts of values they had the way the ways they wanted their life to be led and obviously having enough to have a life that wasn't precarious and that had some security and that allowed them to live a decent life through the money that they earned would be really important but there were other things that were about having a life that they valued and having friends and uh, and all sorts of other things that are part of a, a rich life and being critically engaged in what's going on around them that were really kind of highly valued alongside obviously mm. what they learned in the degree in terms of knowledge and skills and so on. But it was, there were a lot of things that were more than just, um, just the possibilities for a particular form of employment and, and in particular, just highly paid employment, which didn't mean that they all wanted to yeah, end up being baristas or working in McDonald's, but it, it did mean there was more to it than, uh, than just the, um, you know, getting the best paid job that there was available. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. Um, again, thinking back to my own university experience, it was really, it's really what I did a lot of growing up. And then, and then, and then when I came out of university, I realized I still hadn't really fully grown up and I did more growing up with, um, with, with the university experience as well. Like, uh, so, so the, yeah, the, so the, so the education market gets opened up, but the job market hasn't been opened up in order to funnel funnel all these graduates in uh, i was just thinking about like the 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 reason for going to university like it definitely i re I re remember it um kind of changing by like when i was when i was in school into sixth form and what i thought i was going into university and by the time i went to university it was a lot more like you need to make sure you go to university in order to get a job that's what you're doing that's what you're doing it for and uh as a kid coming up that wasn't what i thought it was but then that's what it became by the time i was there um and I suppose just like um, I became I, like a kind of read around the subject more and like and and just kind of understood that universities are also for things like critical thinking and expanding of and expanding of um, uh, you know uh, yeah ways of thought and things like that and and uh, um, and just that there was was yeah was was there kind of a a misstep in terms of like. You, you open up the education market to let all these students in, but then you say the reason why you're here is so that you can go get a job, which don't exist because the job market hasn't been expanded. But the, but the, but there are other reasons to go to university as well. Yes, friends and community and relationships and things like that, but also um, uh, 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 exposing you you to other ways of thought. Like that that doesn't, from my perspective, that didn't seem to be such a valued thing in the university experience. Not necessarily from my lecturers, but certainly from like the structures that were telling them what to do. Um, it didn't seem like it was very important anymore for students to 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 do that. Would, would that be fair? I guess one of the I think one of the things that 
the whole thing gets mixed up with is as you as we as we've shifted to university fees uh, tuition fees being paid by individuals mm. and as those university fees have increased um enormously uh then particularly in the way that we we live and also uh given what income or available funding you may have you want to know what the returns to that are going to be mm. and the emphasis uh both uh in in policy but also often for individuals is if i'm paying that sort of money what do i get back and that's going to be thought of in return in terms of what's financial ter- returns might I get? Right. Doesn't mean you spend your three years at university or in higher education thinking like that necessarily, but certainly that's th- that's there and it's in the back of your mind and mm. you're encouraged um, to think, am I getting value for money? And uh, is this what I want? And if I've paid this amount, would I expect someone to do this or to do that and talk to me in this way and be available at particular times of day and night? So um I think, uh, you know, I'm, I wouldn't be advocating that we should be hoping for that idea of a university when a very small elite went to university and had rather what sounds like a rather lovely life once upon a time where they <laughs> sit around and uh, enjoy talking and being critically engaging with each other. Mm. Um, I, I would I would be wanting to advocate for lots of people having the opportunity to participate in higher education, which may mean the new forms of higher education that are coming along, which are not necessarily universities, that are different institutions that are possibly done not in a whole block um, of study, but but uh, but done done as sets of of. Um, more open university style where you do a number of modules and then you perhaps mm. have a have a gap and so on that i think there are still ways to rethink and understand what higher education is about that brings value um that that somehow has that has more than just um getting financial returns in terms of uh, of the graduate labor market but if it doesn't then we're pretty much undone because graduate labor markets are not ever going to become the thing that was ever envisaged or that right. to an extent existed in a in a sort of short period of of uh, of expansion in 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 the second half of the 20th century so we're into a new world and so we have to rethink anyway um, mm. And, and grasp the yeah grasp the nettle and think what are we trying to do both as a nation um and what are we trying to but also what are we trying to encourage individuals to imagine they're doing with education with higher education with any any forms of of learning uh to be part of a, a wider complicated difficult society yeah and the the, the financial burden yeah i hadn't that's a, that's such a such a fair point as well that people yeah you 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 pay in this and you and then you're wondering what are you going to get out that makes so much sense um what uh so um you touched on a little bit but i'd love to hear a bit more like uh what what kind of big bigger changes um should be should we be making to ensure that future graduates uh, regardless of their background can benefit equally from the university experience so um i do think that there are there are things that uh, if if i focus on the university experience um there's a real need to re- to to recognize what effect it has if you don't fit into the dominant cultures Mm. Uh, in in university and in higher education but in universities in particular um 
more so than in higher education, for example, in colleges, which um, has a, have rather different cultures. Um, but one of the participants in the project explained how middle class students dominate the academic as well as the social space. And she said uh, they're the people who are running the activities, they're the department reps. Um, they have the confidence to talk in lectures mm. and ask questions. And she explained uh, what effect that had. And she said, people don't realise how much your confidence affects your ability to get the most out of ed your education, whether it's by feeling able to talk to a lecturer and feel like you can ask for help when you need it and that kind of thing and feel kind of able to bother someone like a lecturer. And uh, what that means in terms of um, what sorts of things need to change and could be done is that we really already work is being done but it needs to continue to be done that students and graduates from working class and other underserved and disadvantaged backgrounds need access to resources and capitals that other people can take for granted that mm -hmm. those who are more privileged just have anyway and that means they need concerted intervention not just the offer of something but it needs to be concerted and really um targeted um, to support and encourage and enable them to do things, um, things that middle class uh, students from middle class backgrounds will get from their families and from other other places. And that includes, for example, offering active assistance uh, for students from knowledgeable others. And that means people that they trust, like university course tutors, uh, mentors from the world of work. Um, that are specifically targeted at them, not just to everybody, and that goes on beyond graduation. You can't just cut it off at the point of graduation. It needs mm. to carry beyond that. And there are examples of that happening, uh, and there are examples of how that can work and how that can succeed. And that's really, really important. It's it's the it's the access to a knowledgeable other, somebody and somebody that you trust. And then we also need to work on challenging taken for granted assumptions that all graduates want to move away from their home area right. and that they want to work for a top firm. Um, graduates not only may not be able to move away from their home area, but they don't necessarily want to move away from their home area. And we need to work on what that means in terms of how people can work and how they can be employed in areas that are all across um the UK uh, and not just in certain uh, certain places and then I think really strongly and it's really difficult we need to provide knowledgeable support for all sorts of graduate employment and not just obvious named occupations um, if I listed all the different occupations that the graduates in the paired peers project went into only half of them would be ones that people would recognize their jobs that mm people have never heard of mm -hmm. um, and that nobody talks about and probably they were never told about when they were discussing their future employment right and then I would just say they're the things they're, they sound quite small things but they're quite important um, but I think this is beyond the scope of the book but beyond the university in the HE context we're now talking in the 2020s and there are two key changes that will, I think, affect all forms of employment, including the possibilities for graduate employment, that policymakers and employers and universities and the graduates in our study uh, need to engage with right now. And they're going to shift the way we think and they're going to shift work in the future. And that is the two obvious things, really, AI and machine learning, mm. and the climate catastrophe. And they've got mm -hmm. such major implications for the workplace and such major implications for the future of work that anything we talk about in terms of what we can learn from the work that we put into our book 
has to now for the future be located in debates about what the future looks like that really that really gives us you know some some perfect guidance for 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 in, uh, improving things for everybody that's a, that's the thing right improving improving for everybody regardless of um, um yeah who they are uh oh thank you so much for thank you so much for coming on the transforming society podcast today amory it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you thank you and um and to discuss your book uh, and i'll let people know in a moment where they can find your book um but i wanted to uh, ask first uh, is there anywhere we can follow, find you online you can i'm still attached to the university of birmingham although i'm emerita um and uh, still working on both this area which is um those who participate in university and what happens to them but also those who participate in vocational education and what happens to them and their futures so yes please uh, do follow me via my university link and uh, i'll look forward to it excellent you can contact Anne marie by email on a.m.bathmaker at bham.ac.uk the degree generation by nicola ingram Anne marie bathmaker Jesse Abrahams, Laura Bentley, Harriet Bradley, Tony Hoare, Vanda Papafilippou, and Richard Waller is published by Bristol University Press. You can find out more about the book by visiting bristoluniversitypress.co.uk and also transformingsociety.co.uk.